and I'm thankful to open up and study the scriptures together. And this is going to be our last Sunday in Ephesians for a while. Um, and we're going to we're going to change gears, and we're going to begin an Advent series next Sunday. And we're going to be looking at the first two chapters of Luke, which is an, an Advent world straight down the middle. Um, and so we're going to look at the encounters with between different individuals and the angels of the Lord, and the songs they burst into on the spot there. But this week, our passage, Ephesians chapter two, um, verses nineteen through twenty-one, finishes a chapter. Uh, of Paul's letter that started with an individual, personal, vertical rescue by Jesus of individuals like us. And then Ephesians chapter two kind of has gathered force in that salvation has sort of moved outward horizontally to other people with sort of rich consequences, rich consequences like acceptance and nearness and peace in one spirit to the Father. And there's also this sort of continued rich application and implication about what it means to be part of God's ordinary looking miracle. That is the church, the church in the 21st century Cornelius, and also the church globally throughout history and into the future. But really that's very big picture and we're gonna get down into the details, into the, um, into the details of this passage and get a little more specific. But before we do that, I did just wanna pray um, and we're going to pray for God's words to us this morning to meet us where we are um, by the Spirit. So let's pray together. Father, thank you um, for your words to us this morning. Uh, thank you that they're sweet and they are precious. And Lord, for some of us, this is what we're clinging to. Uh, hopefully for more and more of us, this is what we're clinging to. And we're clinging to it out of delight. We're clinging to it out of necessity. We're clinging to these words, to you, the word incarnate Jesus, out of need and desire. And I pray that you would meet us, that you'd meet us in our need and desire. Would you be more real to us? Would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? Would you, Jesus, work through your words once again to satisfy our souls? And Lord, we pray for these, these, this passage. It's rich and deep, and it's worked its work on me and my soul, and I pray that they would do the same for these people gathered to hear it. Thank you uh, for the gift of your word. Help us to receive it well. By your spirit and in your name, Jesus, amen. In the middle of the 20th century, in the rush of prosperity after the, the two world wars that had happened, church attendance began to decline rapidly, first in Europe and then in America. Uh, and instead of kind of quoting all the firmly disproven theories and theologies behind why that happened, most of those things have proved not helpful. Uh, perhaps it is helpful to look at a personal autobiographical account. And it comes from uh, a poet named Philip Larkin about the mid 20th century. He writes about bicycling through the British countryside and only kind of to dismount and to walk in his pedal clips still on sort of a stealthy stomp uh, sneak into an empty small church, country church. And he kind of, it's clear from the get-go that Philip Larkin's not a regular Sunday churchgoer. And so he kind of describes shutting the door and then taking in the scene with this sort of fresh perspective. He sees matting, seats, stone, and little books, 
sprawlings of flowers cut, for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff at the, up at the holy end, the small, neat organ, and a tense, musty, unignorable silence, brewed God knows how long ago. Philip walks the front of the church, what he calls the holy end, which I really like that line, and then he traces the lip of the baptismal fount, and then he mounts the pulpit, and he pronounces a loud and symbolically loaded, here endeth, and then Philip rushes to the church's back, and this is one of my favorite parts. He signs the guest book. It's a great moment. And he drops a sixpence, an Irish sixpence, into the, the donation box. And he says this, reflecting um, the place was not worth stopping for. Yet stop I did. In fact, I often do. And always end much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for. Wondering, too, when churches fall completely out of use. What shall we turn them into? Can you hear his ambivalence there? His honesty, but also his ambivalence. On the one hand, Phelps dismissing the church. It's not worth it. It's bound to fail. On the other hand, he's drawn to churches, only to feel lost inside of them. And the poem never really gets beyond that tension, that dismissive wonder because the poet Philip Larkin never really gets beyond those mixed feelings about church. And so the poem's end reflects this, and he writes, for though I have no idea what this accoutred frousty, that is a really complicated way of saying, this stuffed and stuffy barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here. A serious house on serious earth it is, since someone will, be forever, will forever be surprising, a hunger in himself to be more serious. Again, Philip is simultaneously weighing like what a dressed up stale barn space would go for real estate. And at the same time, he's weighing his own silent hunger for something more solemn, something more serious in his life, something more serious about his life. And so 65 years later, across the Atlantic Ocean, US church attendance is again shrinking. Driven this time by a multi-year pandemic, heightened American consumerism, and of course, divisive politics. And once again, we can, we can have this tipping internally back and forth, that feeling that Larkin so captured so well, right? It's, it can feel like the church is becoming obsolete. And some people are even saying that the church, as we know it, is over. You know, we think this when we see another Christian celebrity deconvert friends and neighbors and family less and less frequently going to church. And yet here we are on a Sunday, maybe again, with that gnawing hunger for something more, something more serious. And Paul's original audience felt that similar fears and similar frustrations, but also similar hungers the Ephesians were likely meeting in a church member's home, it's their house. And in that house, there was two groups. One group was ethnically Jewish. And so when they looked around and quietly compared their stuffy, stale sort of setup for church, they would think immediately in contrast to Herod's temple in Jerusalem and the majesty there. The other group, ethnically Greek and Roman, would look around at the browning flowers and sniff the musty air, and they, their eyes, their hearts would turn and think about the ancient wonder of the world, 
just outside of the city limits of, Ephes- of, of Ephesus that was towering over their gathering, the Temple of Diana, the, the, the world's largest building at that time. And the Ephesian church needed to know in those moments, both groups, what they were becoming. Who would they grow together to be? And I think in God's infinite wisdom, God knows we need to hear that too. And we, in fact, are hungry for the answers to those questions. And so Paul gives us God's vision, a vision of who we are as a church and also who we're becoming as a church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, we're, we're giving these three serious images that feed our felt needs. We're a home of belonging. We're a building of truth. We're a temple of trust. And then, of course, the follow-up question, how do we live into these identities in Jesus Christ? And really, the sermon outline that's projected behind me in your e-bulletin is really just this, is just uh, unpacking those three images, this, the what and the so what of those three metaphors about the church. First, in verse 19, we feel and do present tense love in God's home of belonging. And then second, in verse 20, we feel and do historical security in God's building of truth. And then third and finally, in verses 21 through 22, we feel and we do future purpose in God's temple of trust. And really, um, we're going to step into those individual, ind- individual images one at a time. And we're going to begin with verse 19 and how the church is a home of belonging. So if you look at verse 19 with me, uh, you'll see where we're going. If, in verse 19, Paul is contrasting those who are loyal to Jesus as what we were and what we now are. You were strangers. You were just passing through, just visiting Christian community, you know, taking in the sights and the smells and the sounds, but with a bag packed in your hotel room and a return ticket in your back pocket. And I want to acknowledge that some here this morning, whether online or in, or in person, are in this place mentally. You were dragged here. For years, you've been dragged to church. Or you were invited and you took someone up at a last second invitation. We clicked a link. And you are taking it all in, but you're just not sure the church is a home for you. It feels strange. You feel like a stranger. Well, the next step of emotional involvement for you might be what Paul calls an alien, and the word alien immediately evokes images of extraterrestrials, ET, um, and really, that's not what it means to Paul. In the Old Testament, alien was a way of talking about sojourners. Those are those people who lived in a place or a nation like Israel, who were permanent residents but didn't share the full rights of citizenship, legal and civil rights. That is, you may have a passport, but not a birth certificate. You may call the church home, but more often than not, you don't feel at home here. So several years ago, um, there was a YouTube video. I wouldn't say it went viral, but it got a lot more watches than it should have because it was in foreign language. It was in a foreign language and subtitled. Uh, And maybe you've seen it. It's a European man and a camera crew. They traveled to this remote farming community in the Ivory Coast. And the, the television interviewer 
uh, he interviews a poor farmer named Alphonse. Alphonse is a poor cocoa bean farmer. And he's actually never tasted chocolate before. <laughs> and so chocolate costs an exorbitant amount of money in the Ivory Coast, and it's only provided for in the cities, and he's pretty far away from a local city. Um, and so Alphonse doesn't even know what the cocoa beans are actually used for that he's growing. He has no earthly idea. And so when the interviewer asks him, he says, I think it's for wine. It's no idea. And so the TV host gives Alphonse the product of his labor, a chocolate bar. And Alphonse is very skeptical. And he tries just a little corner, a little piece of the chocolate bar. And he puts it in his mouth and his eyes light up. And he goes, yummy, delicious. And then Alphonse insists on taking the rest of the chocolate bar to all of his fellow laborers in the cocoa fields. And he sort of, they, he has to have them taste it because they don't know what cocoa is being used for. And so Alphonse and this foreign host interrupt all these different groups of men and women and children who are drying cocoa beans and harvesting cocoa beans. And at first, these farmers are just like Alphonse. They, they, they are really skeptical and they just kind of feel the chocolate bar in the wrapper. And then finally, they put a little bit in their mouth, and each of them, in turn, smiles and shouts, so sweet. <laughs> and then one of the workers wants to keep the wrapper to show his children. And then the video kind of turns to ends with one of the cocoa laborers kind of talking to the camera, and he says, we complain because growing cocoa is hard work. And now we enjoy the result. What a privilege to taste it. And then he turns to his co-workers and shouts, continue, hard workers. And that's the end of the video. It's awesome. I, and I think that maybe several of us in this room and, and watching online, several of us may never have tasted the gospel chocolate of being the church. Or perhaps it's just been a while since you let your guard down enough to allow yourself to expect to taste and to see and to feel the person of Jesus here behind the worship activities in the gathering. And we get to sink into all those goods and privileges, all the spiritual rights and the sense of that kind of sense of at-homeness and belonging that belongs to those who are born again, born again to a new country, born again to a new family as a fellow citizen with saints and members of the household of God. And you feel this, right? I feel this in my life. Our lives are spent asking that question, where do I belong? How do I belong there? And, it's, and it starts emotionally. We have these sort of occasional twinges of nostalgia, no matter who you are, for pieces of our childhood. Maybe it's a toy or smell. For old homes and schools that we went to, we find ourselves driving by them, <laughs> tenderly revisiting memories. And we follow our hearts from place to place, right? Country clubs and gyms, dinner parties and chat rooms. And we're asking this, we're going from people to people, those friends in that group, or that family member who used to get me, or that field of study, and, or that career, or that corporation that will finally appreciate what I have to offer. What if the sweet chocolate of life is in what sometimes feels like hard work? going to church and following up with people, people we're not sure we like, people we feel so unlike. What if weekly 
and sometimes more than weekly, gathering together and sharing about Jesus, hearing and speaking and serving in Jesus' name is how we make chocolate out of cocoa beans. Trusting the sweetness of fellow shared citizenship under the Lord Jesus, being a kid sister and a kid brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so maybe it's just a, a shout to myself, continue hard workers. And <laughs> the words of theologian and writer G.K. Chesterton, true religion is always trying to make men see, smell, handle, hear, and devour the truth. But what is truth? What's the truth that we're trying to invite others into, trying to invite ourselves to devour? In verse 20, Paul describes the truth as a building. That's our second point and second image. In the English translation, this image of a building seems to come out of completely out of nowhere, right? There we were, we were citizen of a nation. Then Paul's like, no, 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 you're more like really kin in a family. And all of a sudden we're a piece of architecture. And you're like, Paul, what gives, right? What are you doing to us, jerking us around? In the Greek, the word for members of the household is actually more literally translated something like household ones or house people. And so really all Paul's doing here is he's just extending this metaphor of home and hominess. And he's talking about the house that makes the home. And if you've ever kind of owned a home or rented a home, um, you'll immediately know why he, he turns his gaze towards the foundation. Because he can, you can appreciate the fact that the foundation sets the shape of the house and it tells you the future of the house. You know, whether it's gonna be a constant money dump and a forever fixer-upper. Or maybe it doesn't look like much, but it's got good bones and has staying power. And so we have to ask with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to ask this question, is the house built on solid rock or is it built on shifting sand? Can it securely hold us when the storms of life come and they batter and they beat and they blow? In verse 20, Paul telling, yes, the true church has a solid stone foundation. It begins with Jesus as the cornerstone, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his powerful resurrection. They anchor any sense of true community, right? For instance, Jesus' example and his powerful, for, powerful forgiveness teach us what true love is. It's that combination of telling and listening and serving the truth, but doing so in love. What do those mean? It's truth. Do I live my life? Do I invest my time and my energy and my finances that if Jesus did not live and did not die and did not rise again, my life would not be well lived? Am I living that leaning into it that I would fall flat on my face if he wasn't true? And it's love. It's giving others the benefit of the doubt I get to assume I'm not a mind reader. <laughs> I get to check my condemnations. I get to assume the best about someone until I'm proven otherwise. And that's love. And Jesus as the cornerstone also at the same time sets the reason for and the pattern of the rest of the foundation, right? The apostles and the prophets, which is just a shorthand way of saying the Bible, the New Testament, 
the apostles who wrote most of the New Testament, and the Old Testament, the prophets who wrote most of the Old Testament. That is to say that the church's primary rule book and blueprint is contained in these scriptures. The Bible is the church's reason for being and direction of its growth through space and time. But what does that mean? Right? First of all, history and our present cultural moment have taught us the church has some problems. Right? Even the best-looking church, the one with the most curb appeal, often doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. But when a church gets off kilter, maybe even implodes or explodes, the problem always starts at the foundation. It always begins by ignoring Jesus and or the Bible. Here's how Dick Keyes puts it. The church's worst failures have always been when it denies its Lord, Jesus, and ignores its book, the Bible. So when we evaluate a local church, right, when we begin to question what a church does or doesn't do and why it does or doesn't do those things, we need to resist the urge to see the church merely as a human activity measured by human expectations. You know, just looking at the kind of easy measurable statistics like dollars and seats or whether it's programming game plan suits my kind of family or my personal preferences. And really, I just want to pause there and say that mentality is so easy to slip into, especially in 21st century America. But it's been easy to slip into forever. And I've spent a lot of days this week thinking a lot about just one sentence that Sky Smith said. And the rest of the quote is awesome. It's in your e-bulletin. I recommend reading it. It's a wonderful quote. But here's here's how he ends it. Whenever I define anything or anyone primarily in terms of benefit to me, I am committing idolatry. Whenever Whenever I define anything or anyone primarily in terms of benefit to me, I'm committing idolatry. And I just, we do this, I do this all the time with the church. So whether it's getting our heads and our hearts around the awfulness of things like slavery or the crusades, the church's role in those things, or the latest celebrity pastor crash and burn, or just buying into how to enjoy North Cross and make it better, we need to start with, we need to primarily test and approve what is good and acceptable about the church. And we need to do it with Jesus and his word. Not by a cultural fashion, not by a personal preference, not by a numerical statute. That's where we begin. And this idea of treating the church not just as a human deal with human measurables and also treating the church, but also treating the church as God's, Jesus's body with divine priorities. Paul is accentuating this need for a spiritual shift for us. And he does it in verses 21 and 22. He does it by zeroing in on just what kind of building the church is. What is it meant to be? It's God's temple of trust. That's our third and final point. Paul knows He gets what we think about the church. We we can think of it as nothing but a building. It's nothing but those people. It's nothing but us doing everything all the time. 
And so Paul writes of the church, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice we're already on a future trajectory here. The church is growing, but how is it growing? It's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That word temple, naus in the original Greek of Paul's letter, that word naus refers specifically to the innermost room of a temple, what's called the Holy of Holies. And it's where the deity dwells, whether it's Greco-Roman or Hebrew. Therefore, Paul appropriately adds his people, the church, are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. The emphasis is on God's people assembled together in worship in scripture and in prayer, in serving the community and neighbors and singing, because that's where God calls home. This is where heaven and earth meet in an embrace that can only be described as a kiss, which is crazy. <laughs> and God's dwelling among us should give us a renewed energy for what it means to, to be faithful, to have a heavenly purpose, because we believe that God's here among us in an especially intimate and especially powerful way, even when we can't see or feel it. But how? How does God calling us together, his home, how does it make any earthly difference? To answer that question, we've got to step deeper into this image. So in this image, Jesus is the temple's cornerstone, and the prophets and the apostles are the foundation stones built around Jesus, that base level. What does that mean for you and I? What are we? Each of us, as we trust in Jesus, is a living stone. That is, atop and below, beside each other, for we form the very walls of the temple of God, of his living and breathing, his very much alive temple. In the words of Scotty Smith, the new temple God is erecting isn't made from Jerusalem limestone, but resurrected lives. It isn't rocks lifted from a quarry, but lives redeemed by God's grace. Our life's purpose is something so much bigger than it used to be. It's so much more built together. It's so much more tied together than it used to be. We who are individually so different, we rise together in Christ as one unit. And Sinclair Ferguson kind of captures the heart behind this image in a really wonderful way. I didn't know this until recently, but Sinclair Ferguson's maternal grandfather, he's a theolo famous theologian who's got a great Scottish accent, by the way, which I cannot imitate. But he's got this maternal grandfather who was a stonemason in the northernmost county of Scotland. Um, and if you know anything about the weather pattern there, you can't build wooden fences. They won't last very long. <laughs> and so stonemasons are the people that build all of the dividers between every piece of property in that county. And what's interesting is um, the stone walls were made without cement mortar. And so what that means is that to keep the stones together, that the stonemason would to chisel the stones so they have, to rough, they have to smooth the rough edges until they fit completely together, perfectly together, so they'd stay put without cement. And the temple of Diana, the tower over Ephesus, as the ancient wonder of the world, and the temple in Jerusalem, they're built in the same fashion. Did you know that? That they're built on this huge scale with 20 to 30 
cubic feet big stones. These mammoth stones required stonemasons to chisel away at the edges of them so that they would fit snugly together because they did not use cement mortar. And so they could stay put for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And God's church, the temple, this dwelling place by the spirit is built in a similar manner. You see, God is not a cement mixer. He doesn't fashion his temple of living stones using sticky mortar. He's a stonemason. He chisels away at each of us. He smooths the rough edges so that we fit together, so we more perfectly fit together with the other people in his church. And I'll be the first to confess this can hurt like mad, especially to pride level, but even more relationally, right? It hurts to put others first. It stings to set aside your will for another person's will. But God knows that's where the fulfillment is. It lies in pursuing God's will first. Fulfillment comes from reaching out to the lonely, to the wounded, to the socially awkward, to the self-absorbed, in the parking lot after church, or during the week for coffee or a meal. Being a living stone in God's temple looks like leaving the comfort zone of who we know and stepping up and coming up under and coming alongside someone else to show that they matter. And we can lay our lives down like this because we trust by the Spirit that God is chiseling. He is stacking a new and better house. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one he thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up the towers, making the courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to, he intends to come and live in it himself. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. Why? Because he intends to come and live in you himself. For years. I can't tell you how long. It's embarrassing. I only thought of that as you singular. I only thought of that as I'm the house he's building. So my life hurts, I'm getting better. (laughs) But what if it's you plural? (laughs) Does that change the whole idea? God is building a palace and it's us, his church, together. And this church, not the temple in Jerusalem, not the temple of Diana, This worldwide, centuries-long church is the greatest wonder of the world and the universe. You know why? Because God looks at it and says, that's my wonder. And although 10 years after Philip Larkin's poem, Time Magazine declared God is dead, the church can look back at the last half of the 20th century, and it can say with Mark Twain, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. And finally, we can look around the world 
the church growing wider to countries like China, where millions upon millions of people are becoming Christian. So many so that in the last than 10 years, there will be more Christians in China, a place where true Christianity is being persecuted and people are being arrested for their faith. There'll be more people in China who are Christian than in the U.S. And then we can look at America closer to home and we can see that the church is growing deeper where people actually who go to church have never been more serious. They've never been more hungry for belonging and truth and trust. And with Sinclair Ferguson, we can praise the Lord our God, our stonemason, because as painful and as fragile as it all can feel sometimes, God is building a church in which he likes to go to church. He's building a church in which he's at home because he's built us together in his grace. Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you. Thank you for this reminder of what you're up to. I confess it can feel, I can feel lost inside the church just like Philip Larkin. <laughs> but I'm thankful for the ways that you show up and you remind us of your purpose. Lord, for some of us, life feels like a chisel right now. And for other, others of us, it feels very comfortable. And I pray that you'd apply the challenge and the comfort where, where it needs to be applied by your spirit. Do your will through your word once again. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.